Hi, and thanks for listening to Here and Now Anytime. We've got new episodes every weekday afternoon, so make sure you don't miss anything by following and subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. Just look for Here and Now Anytime. And if you've already subscribed, tell a friend about us. Now here's the show. Everybody wants to know what the hell's in the air, in the water. I want to know what I sucked into my lungs. The people of East Palestine, Ohio, demand answers. But they're not getting many after the railroad company behind their town's environmental disaster pulled out of a public meeting. It's Thursday, February 16th, and this is Here and Now, Anytime. From NPR and WBUR Boston, I'm Chris Bentley. Today on the show, a dispatch from Turkey and a look at the situation in northwest Syria, where earthquake rescue and recovery continues. And examining the representation of blackness in opera. But first, as we heard a moment ago from resident Ted Murphy, people in the town of East Palestine can't trust the air they breathe after a train carrying toxic chemicals derailed and caught fire almost two weeks ago. Adding to that trust issue is the fact that Norfolk Southern Railway, the company that runs those trains, refused to attend a public meeting last night. Hundreds of people lined up to get into the meeting in the East Palestine High School gym, however, and were able to talk to the mayor and other public officials about the ongoing disaster. Brooks Sutherland was there for the Cincinnati Inquirer. He spoke earlier today with Deepa Fernandez. So tensions were high last night as residents demanded answers. Let's hear from one resident speaking to Fox 8 News. Your home is here, all of your things are here, myself, my home, and my business are here, and we don't feel safe coming home because of all the chemicals that were, you know, exploded into the sky and the ground. What were the most pressing questions at last night's meeting, Brooks? Yeah, absolutely. When you say tensions are high, that was that, that's a good way to put it. And look, they, the, the, the questions that these residents wanted to ask are, we're hearing from the EPA, we're hearing from medical folks that the air is fine, the water is fine, it's safe for us to return, yet we're seeing all these symptoms that residents are reporting. We're seeing rashes on the skin of, of, of residents that were in the immediate area, we're seeing fish dead in creeks, we're seeing... Uh, yeah. children kind of complaining of headaches, nosebleeds, things of that such. So their their main question is, you, everyone's telling us that things are okay. We have eyes for ourselves. We're kind of seeing that things aren't okay. Mm, did they get any answers? So the, 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 the town hall, just to paint a little bit, uh, it was initially billed as a town hall. That was then changed to more of like a, a job fair setting where tables were going to be set up and the residents were going to be able to go and ask, you know, individual agencies what they wanted. The, the reason, and you talked about this at the top, hundreds of people showed up is they wanted to hear from, from Norfolk and Southern. That obviously didn't yeah. happen. Uh, the day of, the mayor got a call, said that uh, the folks at Norfolk and Southern kind of didn't feel safe coming. And so it did eventually turn into a town hall. Um, some folks afterwards kind of didn't feel that they got their questions answered, but... Uh, they were able to at least kind of get some of their frustration out, and, and certainly rightfully so. Well, let's hear from East Palestine Mayor Trent Conaway, who spoke last night. Everybody's concerned. I'm concerned. But, you know, it's not Norfolk Southern here. It's the EPA, the people that have been working with us, trying to get our citizens back into their homes safe. That's what we need right now. We need our citizens to feel safe in their own homes. What are officials doing to make people feel safe, Brooks? They're doing a lot of testing. They're consulting with, uh, you know, state, federal. Uh, they're trying to coordinate efforts. Um, the other thing, the, the governor of Ohio is is hoping to get 
uh, more help from the federal government, get the CDC on board to kind of um, wrap in uh, and, and put together, you know, what what exactly could have this, this exposure could have caused. Um, when you talk to residents, one of their concerns is they go to their doctor and the doctor tells them, look, we don't know what to test for. Uh, you know, you have symptoms, but we can't really connect it to this, you know, this exposure yet. So I think in general, um, all of the agencies are kind of trying to pull uh, resources and, and, and figure out uh, where to go from here. Is it clear that state officials are doing their due diligence? Because it's one thing to have all these symptoms, dizziness, headaches, fish dying, and another thing to be told, oh, it's okay. Well, there's certainly a, a mistrust, I think, of, of, of residents of, of you know what they're told. They're, they're hearing from officials that things are fine, but they really don't know if they can trust that yet, uh, given, yeah. you know, reporting symptoms, other things like that. So I, I think they understand okay. that officials are trying, but they, they really want answers now. Brooke Sutherland, health reporter with Cincinnati Inquirer. Thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. Coming up, the earthquake has drawn the world's attention back to Syria, whose civil war continues despite having faded from American headlines in recent years. Deepa and Robin Young have a couple conversations that consider where the country goes from here. And we also get an update from Turkey. That's after the break. The death toll from the earthquake that hit Syria and Turkey 10 days ago is now more than 39,000. We've taken you to Turkey a few times since the earthquake. Today, we'll check in on Syria. While the country confronts the huge task of recovering from the earthquake, it's also dealing with the continuing violence of the Russian-backed Assad regime and 12 years of civil war. The Assad regime has only just started letting aid and international support into the affected areas this week. Louisa Lovelock, reporter with our editorial partner, The Washington Post, was recently in Syria. She's now in Turkey. Louisa, welcome. Thank you. You've been in northwest Syria, which was one of the worst hit areas by the earthquake. Can you describe what it's like there and the extent of the damage? Yes, well, I've been to Syria twice in the past week. I've been to visit the two areas which are under the control of Turkish-linked armed groups, spending most of our time in a town called Jinderis. And it really is one of the worst affected places that we know of in Syria. We went on Friday for the first time, and at that point there were 850 people confirmed dead. By the time we returned on Tuesday, it was 1,200. And when you drive through the town, entire blocks have been shattered. We saw families digging with their hands for loved ones in the rubble for lack of equipment. Mm. We saw other families standing in crowds as they sort of watched what constitutes the organised rescue effort. But really, it's an incredibly crude effort and one that is probably damaging a lot of people as as they do come out, if if they come out alive, which is increasingly rare. They're using these excavators, which frankly are incredibly crude tools for the job. As I say, they're actually doing more harm than good to to the survivors. And it really stands in contrast to what we've seen in Turkey, where, you know, I was watching a a team from the Iranian Red Crescent a few days ago pull out one man from the rubble, and it took them six hours because they used about seven or eight different types of tools and painstakingly went through the rubble bit by bit, cut the rebar, moved him as carefully as possible. And in Syria, you have all of these people still under the rubble and nothing really to do the job with. So, so Louisa, why? I mean, it's literally just across the border. Why is there such a marked difference between what's happening in the rescue efforts in Syria? 
Well, the simple answer is it, it's just that aid hasn't got through. They haven't had the equipment to do what they need in the rescue effort. They haven't necessarily had the specialist equipment to do what they need to do in the hospitals. First of all, this is a country that's been at war for 12 years and capacity in the northwest is severely hampered. Rescue, rescue crews who have been used to pulling people out of the rubble and out after the bombardment by the Assad regime are exhausted, they are depleted, they do not have the resources they once had. And even if they did, you know, this is a, this is a tragedy of a magnitude that with a death toll that, that makes the war's death toll on any given day, week or month pale in comparison. And this is something yeah. that a lot of people will say to you um, when you talk to them about the things that their areas have been through. They say, yeah. you know, they've been through hell often for 12 years. Well, and then this I happened. wanted to ask, I want to ask you because you reported on a particular hell, which is children who have lost their parents and their families. Tell me about the children and, and are you encountering a lot of them? There are a lot of them. Um, we were reporting on this issue when we went back a couple of days ago and we had wondered initially how, how to find these children. You know, do you go to orphanages? What sort of orphanages exist? Are they in the hospitals? But actually, it just took, took walking into Jindera's town centre to ask about the, the issue, to ask if anyone knew who was affected, to have pretty much a crowd full of people put up their hands and say, yes, I know someone, I know someone, mm. you know, mm. my my sister died along with her husband and you know, the children are orphans. And that's, those stories came over and over. And we started to realise just what the scale was. And one of the children is a 12-year-old who was found and now is with her uncle. Tell us more about her situation and, and what happened to her. So she was asleep when the earthquake happened along with her family. And everyone apart from her in her immediate family was killed. She was pulled from the rubble. Um, her twin brother, Rashid, uh, didn't make it. Her other siblings didn't make it, and nor did her parents. When we spoke to her, as with many people we've been speaking to throughout this tragedy, it, it was very clear that she was still in a state of complete shock. She was staying with her uncle, her aunt and her uncle, and they were, you know, vowing to make her their daughter now. They, they said, you know, mm -hmm. she will be the apple of her eye. Um, they said, mm -hmm. you know, we will treat her yet, like a princess. Yet they also but, told you that they worry about how they're going to have the resources to do that. Exactly. And as I say, this, yeah. is a part of, this is a part of the world that has suffered so much through conflict and through economic crisis. And the northwestern pocket of Syria is particularly economically deprived. And as this gentleman was saying, making these you know, wonderful grand statements about how much he loved his niece and how much he wanted to do for her, he did say to us separately, I don't know how I'll do it because there is no work, particularly in the aftermath of the earthquake, there's going to be even less. He had his own children mm -hmm. to look after. They were struggling to put food on the table. And this is a situation that is replicated in houses, towns, cities across Syria now. And it's very hard to know yeah. what is going to happen to these children. Well, Louisa Lovelock is with The Washington Post. She's been reporting in Syria. Thank you so much for your reporting, and we'll link to her latest story at hereandnow.org. Thank you, Louisa. Thank you for having me. So the Syrian regime has finally allowed aid to reach the rebel-held area, a UN convoy, 17 trucks, on Tuesday, days after the quake. Let's continue our look stateside with Washington Post columnist Ishan Thurr. Ishan, welcome back. 
Thanks for having me. And that was heartbreaking to hear what you have been mm-hmm. hearing from your colleague. And you write, mm-hmm. Barsha al-Assad sees this quake as an opportunity to rehab his image. A brief reminder, he and his wife were once seen as possible secular reformists, but this 12-year civil war began during the Arab Spring. It grew to include not just pro-democracy groups, but also terrorist groups like ISIS, all against Assad's regime. Why did Bashar al-Assad become a pariah in his handling of this? Well, of course, this is uh, he presides over a country that's been completely shattered in a civil war that his regime has conducted with extreme brutality. Uh, You know, we're seeing these scenes of devastation in Syria, and this is one of the first times it's not Assad's fault, uh, in the sense that, you know, the bombing campaigns he unleashed, especially uh, on the areas that have been now affected by the earthquake. Uh, In northern Syria, the areas around Aleppo, uh, this one rebel-held area in the northwest that my colleague Louisa visited, uh, they have been ravaged for years mm. by the Assad regime. Yeah. And uh, even in times of relative peace, as the war fighting has subsided, uh, the Assad regime has maintained a real kind of cruel uh, uh, grip over, over this area that the, the rebels hold because it has kind of weaponized humanitarian aid that goes there. Right. The, before the earthquake, the bulk of the population in this area in northwest Syria was already dependent on humanitarian assistance. Yeah. And it's only gotten worse now. Well, and he, he's helped in that, uh, as Louisa Lovelock told you, that weaponizing of access to the areas. He's helped by AIDS uh, uh, allies like Russia at the UN. Um, talk a bit about the UN's failure. Right, this is something that, that that's uh, that's been frustrating to a lot of people in the aid community, in the international aid community, in that uh, the UN for years has abided by rather conservative uh, interpretations of international law that allow the Security Council to dictate what flows across the border between Turkey and and this rebel-held area in Syria. And because of the Russian veto at the Security Council, uh, the Assad regime has been able to really squeeze this northwestern area to maintain only one crossing. And because of the earthquake, a week after the earthquake, the Assad regime decided to allow uh, two additional crossings to be open so more aid could get through. Uh, but but this has been a, a long-standing strategy uh, by a regime that wants to punish uh, millions of people that sided against it. And in this area, this tiny northwestern part of Syria, it's 4% of Syrian territory, there's almost a quarter of the Syrian population uh, stuck there because, uh, and many are, are displaced by this war. So they're enduring a kind of double, triple calamity mm. right now in their lives. Well, and the White House promised that uh, strict sanctions on the Syrian government won't prevent their humanitarian assistance from getting to the people of Syria. But as you will know, Assad is crowing that that's a major victory because he's been trying to tie aid being allowed in to sanctions being dropped. We know a big concern, as you point out, is that uh, the Biden administration and those have to watch that uh, people won't hide investments or transactions in that aid, uh, transactions that should be considered sanctionable. Um, Right. So so there's this concern that as uh, some of the strict sanctions get loosened up to allow um, direct flows of humanitarian aid for earthquake relief directly into Syria via Damascus, you know, through the Syrian regime, essentially, that some of that that aid is going to get siphoned off in all sorts of dark and sordid ways. Uh, by a regime that is 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 cash starved and you know mm-hmm. presiding over an economic basket case of a situation in Syria as it was, I think I think there's an extent to which we can overstate those fears. By and large, uh, this crisis is not going to uh, 
you know, allow Assad to come out of the cold, especially as far as the yeah. West and Europe is concerned. What is more interesting to watch now is the extent to which a process that was already in motion, a very slow burn kind of normalization with yeah. other Arab countries that we've been seeing happening um, in recent, in the last couple Bringing of years. Bringing Assad back into the fold. I'm going to have to stop you there, but we will right. have you back, Ishan Tharoor, and link people to your writing, herenow.org. Coming up, in the world of opera, there's not a lot of representation for people of color. After the break, Robin Young speaks with one classical radio host and musician who hopes to change that. Stick around. Think shining classical music stars. Chances are they're white. A new podcast hopes to change that. Every Voice with Terence McKnight launches today to explore voices of color in classical music. Season one, the problematic portrayals of black characters in opera. And Terence McKnight of WQXR in New York joins us now. Welcome. Thank you so much, Robin Young. Launching today, and we know you're kind of immersed in putting this together. What was it you were trying to say with this whole podcast? (sighs) There's so many things. I think perhaps the first and most important thing is what, you know, music has always been about for me, and that's connecting people. And I think that an art form as old as opera has so many opportunities to connect people across demographics, all sort of demographics. And, you know, when you step into the opera house, you don't see that. You don't see a wide range, a wide spectrum of America. Let's just talk about America. You just don't see a wide spectrum of Americans. And so for me, as a musician, as a radio host, you know, there's opportunity there. And so here's an opportunity for me to use music, my passion for people and humanity to have a conversation that can bring more people together. Mm -hmm. And bring more of an awareness. So you're starting in this first series to look at four black figures in works by Mozart and Verdi. Talk about those figures and what we might think we know if we know a little opera and what you want us to know. So the first opera that we are dealing with is Mozart's Magic Flute. to deal with this opera because there is a figure, a guy named Monastatos, and he's depicted as the chief slave. And in many productions, he has been portrayed by white singers who had to wear dark makeup, Mm. you know, and that's become very problematic, you know, recently. Mm -hmm. And not only does he have to wear dark makeup and enslaved, but he's like a buffoon in some productions tries to commit sexual assault. So you have this depiction of the one black character who is all of those things. Now, this is 1791, so it was like the height of the slave trade. 
For me, I would be concerned about how people were looking at me or if they were making a connection between him on stage and, and the guy sitting in row L. And so that's why we chose this opera, so we can find ways of looking at this character, not as a buffoon, but somebody who deserves some empathy. You know, we're not going to get rid of Magic Flute, but we can change the way we think about it. We can change the way directors look at it. It's been changed over the years, so he's not often depicted as a black man anymore. Sometimes he's green or sometimes he's purple, and they do all kinds of things to take the language out because the language in there, he says, I am black and black is ugly. So, Terrence, what do we do with this? Uh, as you said, you're not going to get rid of the magic flute. Do we somehow change the way this performance is done to make him more sympathetic? I do. And, you know, Robin, I'm not an opera director, but I think if we can get in the ears of the directors who will perhaps find a way to bring some more humanity to this character. Sometimes it could be as simple as slowing down the music and not making it so comedic in those moments where Monastatos is really begging to be seen and to be heard and to be loved. And he's not someone who's trying to necessarily commit sexual assault. You know, you mentioned that people performed in blackface because black people, certainly enslaved people, were not going to be singing these roles. And this just happened, what, uh, last year in a performance of Aida in Verona. That's right. I think Anna Netrepko, there were some people who were very upset with her browning up to play Aida. Well, let's talk about Aida, Verdi's Aida, the star in the opera, an Ethiopian princess captured by an Egyptian commander. And here we have uh, Leontine Price singing the aria O Patria Mia, where she's singing of missing her homeland. Crystal. Terrence McKnight, what more did you want to say about this role? Well, you know, my parents are from Mississippi, as is Lantine Price, so I have a, an affinity to her career and to her voice and to her walk. One thing I remember from seeing, just from my research, is that when she sang Aida, there was a production where she had to wear a blonde wig. She's playing an Ethiopian princess. Yeah, that's right. And so here again, and it comes up in Magic Flute because Monastatos says that he falls in love with white and white is beautiful. And that's part of the issue that, you know, some of the singers have, having to say that. And so here we have this Ethiopian princess, you know, and Leontine Price, who is cast with a blonde wig. You know, I think that may have been in the 50s. Uh, maybe we're not there anymore, you know, but I remember seeing Aida. I was in Georgia, and I took one of my East African friends with me. Mm. And I was so happy to take her to see Aida. Mm. And when we got there, 12 minutes in, she leaned over and said, T, why are the Ethiopians black and the Egyptians white? And I just sunk down in my chair. And there have been productions where these brown-skinned Ethiopians 
as they're often cast, are in ropes or chains on stage. And Ethiopians are very proud of the fact that of all of the continent that was carved up and colonized, that Ethiopia fought against it. But now we have on stage the Ethiopians enslaved by Egyptians who in many presentations are cast as Caucasians. What do we do about the chains? If this was something well, that Verdi envisioned, do you change it? Because it's maybe not historically accurate? I'm not sure. I don't have all the answers, except to say that we have to be able to look at these works with understanding of the historical context. But the bottom line, again, is to be able to try and cast these things fairly. And I don't think I wouldn't be as bothered if the Ethiopians were in ropes and all of the cast were black folks because we cannot shed that baggage of you know, slavery being something that was cast upon Africans by Europeans. Mm. Are you cheered by the stories? Like I'm thinking of Lemmy Pullian, who quit singing because of uh, fat shaming. He was overweight. He became a security guard. He worked on the uh, Obama campaign. And because somebody didn't show up to sing the national anthem in some stadium, he ended up singing it. And then he makes his way back to the opera stage. Here he is singing Sipelchel from Otello, another opera you cover in the series. I think each individual story can inspire someone. And, you know, Lemmy, his story is just incredible. You know, here's someone who grew up singing and came from a large family, sang in church and just had a wonderful, distinct voice. And now for him to be able to place that voice in a hall deserving of his talent yeah. is just a phenomenal story. And imagine that little boy or girl, you know, they hear Lemmy and it's inspiring. That's what it's about. It's about inspiring the next generation and inspiring someone else. That's WQXR's Terrence McKnight, his new 16-episode podcast series, Every Voice with Terrence McKnight, debuts today. Uh, we'll link you up at herenow.org. Terrence, thank you so much. Thank you, Robin. Thanks for having me. This show comes from the team behind Here and Now, from NPR and WBUR Boston. There's always more to explore at hereandnow.org. Today we've got a look at reproductive health care in Kentucky, where the state's Supreme Court upheld a near-total ban on abortion today. And after seven immigrants were killed at two farms in Half Moon Bay, California last month, we've got a look at the relatively untold history of Asian farmers in the U.S., Today, they make up less than 1% of the farming population. So I think we're all forgiven if, you know, our first image in our mind of a farmer isn't someone of Asian descent. But if you dig deeper and then just considering the history of the country as a whole, Asian and Asian Americans have made a huge contribution to uh, the agricultural landscape. For that full conversation, head to hereandnow.org. Today's stories were produced by Koyani Saxena, Gabrielle Healy, and Thomas Daniellian. Our editors are Todd Munt, Julia Corcoran, Peter O'Dowd, Jill Ryan, and Kat Welch. 
Technical direction from Max Liebman and Mike Moschetto. Theme music by Max, Mike, and me. Our digital producers are Grace Griffin and Allison Hagen. And the executive producer of Here and Now is Carlene Watson. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow. Tomorrow.